Amanda Max of Tangent. Hi, Madam. Joined by Annie. Hello. Hello. We have another interview for you guys today. We have a Frank King, a longtime comedian and motivational speaker. It was interesting conversation. It was a lot of fun. We had a lot of lighthearted conversations about very dark things. He's uh, very involved in depression and suicide awareness kind of conversations. As he mentioned in the podcast, he, he knows the flavor of the gun oil that was on his gun at one point. Oh, jeez. Uh, he's real, real serious. Stuff. And you guys joked about that? There was, yes. Because oh, wow. uh, his whole career, he, he, was, he was a comedian for a long time, and then he went into this uh, other realm of things where he was bringing awareness to very serious diseases and uh, mental illnesses. And it was fascinating to hear about it with such a light tone uh, that was happening. And uh, listening back to it, I'm laughing a lot during things that I feel like you shouldn't be laughing about. But I do want to say this was a, like a face-to-face over Zoom. So I'm seeing his face as he's talking. And he's got a, he's got a smirk. He's, in, he's, he's having fun with it as he's telling it, which makes me feel comfortable with, all right, this, that was supposed to be funny. I was supposed to laugh at that. You don't see that. But <laughs> well, I was <laughs> so about I to like say I person. think that it sounds like what you guys are talking about. It's something that's really hard for most people to talk about unless... Most of us deal with difficult things with humor. Right. Um, no one knows how to approach those types of things with humor. So if this guy's found a way to do that, I think that's that's an amazing thing because you can Absolutely. engage in genuine conversation, but without it feeling so heavy. Yeah. And I did learn a lot about uh, the depression and the way suicide uh, works in people's brains. It's I had no idea about so it's educational as well as entertaining. I think he, he's he's a very funny guy. He's, he's the, I love the way he phrases things. It, everything is perfectly phrased to get the most like ha out of it. If that, I don't know if that makes any weird sense, uh, but he, he's, he's a very funny guy. Uh, his website, thementalhealthcomedian.com. dot com, and that's kind of how he's branded himself after all this. The mental health comedian. So you can find him on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, Facebook, LinkedIn. So wait, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook? Uh, yes, Facebook is on there twice. Oh, wow. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> also on LinkedIn, and that's very important because he also does a lot of corporate events. He, he goes to speak at corporate things. Uh, there's uh, testimonials on his website, people that, uh, from like the medical community. Uh, and he's got also a lot of resources on his website to guide you to uh, important things. I actually just went to a virtual networking event that's specific, specifically for the legal community about because apparently the legal community has a much higher rate of mental and substance mental disorders and substance abuse throughout the course of the career Shocking. but it sounds like <laughs> it sounds like he's someone I need to put in touch with the presenter because um, if he can put it in a way that actually is lighthearted yeah um, you know that's He's a fun guy. And uh, I, I did research, as I do with every guest. I, I, I dived in Dundovified. It's Dun, Dundovified Anide. Ah, uh, got it. It's the Anide that, that throws people Thank off. Thank you for. Uh, yeah. uh, if I ever, ever have any grammar issues, I go to Annie. She's always yeah. there for me. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, so he has a lot of <laughs> TED Talks and stuff that he's done. Uh, there was one that we referenced, which I need to look up now. Uh, oh, no. I think it was 
fighting mental disease with orgasms or something like that? When I listen to it, I will let you know what it is. When I listen to this podcast, I will yeah. look it up and I'll fill you in. And I, one thing I also appreciated, uh, at one point he asked me, oh, is, is this a PG-13 podcast or not? God, so Because he, he was, he's able to temper himself to be, if it's for a family-friendly crowd, he can be family-friendly. And then if it's not, here we go. <laughs> he, he's, he's a very professional guy. He, he, know, he knows what he's doing. He's been doing it for a long wait, time. Wait, wait, yep. You're telling me this guy. Mm-hmm. Who made a profession out of this mm-hmm. is professional about it? <laughs> when you put it that way, it's not like a crazy person. What? How dare you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we also do a lot of talking about comedy because uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of comedy and uh, the way comedy is perceived now. And uh, we, we reference a lot of bits from other comedians and whatnot because we just we both enjoy comedy. And it, and he's able to tie everything into kind of the uh, message that he's getting to, which is. Ah, good times. Something I'm curious about, I, I don't know if you guys touched on it or not, but you know, he's obviously speaking lightheartedly, but in a way that's meant to also get a message across about something that's very taboo. Mm-hmm. And there are you know, comedians that get a lot of flack um, for things like that. You know, if you're talking about a taboo subject mm. at all. Did you guys talk about any backlash you may have gotten or anything uh, like that? A, a little bit. We, we, that, that did get touched on at some point. I should also mention uh, this. This was a very long, long interview that we did. <laughs> so I'm actually splitting it up into two parts. So you're getting the first part today. I'm going to do the second part another time. Uh, and I don't remember if it was the first part or the second part in which we talk about that stuff. But we, we did kind of touch on the, um, the blowback and just uh, people that get offended very easily about things and whatnot. Uh, but it was, it was, yeah, it was a good, a very good conversation. I, I could have talked to him for much longer than I actually did. Uh, and I hope maybe I'll talk to him again another time. Or next time I can talk to him and, and you can listen to it later. No, that's fine. Mm-hmm. I'll okay. talk to him. All right. Yeah, uh, there was one thing you brought up that I want to kind of highlight here, uh, talking about suicide and it is, and most crisis type of things. There is a, you can text 741741 if you're. Wait, wait, wait. Say the number slower if you're actually going to. 741741. Text okay. that number if you're in any kind of crisis, and uh, you'll get a response, and that, which is, is pretty cool. Do you just text whatever your crisis is, or is there like a word you're supposed to text, and then they respond, and then you send your crisis, or is it you, just... You text that number, and I'm sure they respond to you so based on 74, whatever. 74741. 741741. I Really glad you were repeating that. Right. right. Yes. Because I definitely misheard you the first couple of times. Fantastic. Well, seven four one seven four one. Yes, that's a, that's a good right. thing to have. So I'll text them tonight after you fall asleep about our relationship. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you should text them about your hearing. Is what you should text them about. <laughs> Actually, don't don't abuse it. That's a, that's an abusive thing. Anyway, uh, very good podcast. It was fun times, and uh, I'll have the second part up for you guys uh, the next couple of weeks or so. Uh, we have a lot of podcasts that I want to get out to you guys. There's some that I'm excited about. Uh, well, I'm excited about all of them, uh, to be fair. They're, they're, <laughs> all, they're all my children. I can't pick a favorite. Uh, but this one was fun. Oh, but I can. Yeah. Especially after last week's podcast where it was very heavy with the protesting and the, and, and the looters and whatnot. I thought this was a perfect place to put in this nice, lighthearted, comedic talk about, about suicide really and depression. <laughs> but it was it, – it's – I think you walk away with a smile. In December, just for everyone to know, I will be picking my favorite of all of Adam's children. Oh. I just decided this right now. Adam's not aware of it, but no, this you is, guys, wow. in December, you will find out who Annie's favorite of all of Adam's quote, quote children 
or his daughter aside, <laughs> his daughter aside, <laughs> metaphoric children, I will be picking a favorite. All right, cool. There's no sense of cut that part pressure out or urgency on my part from that at all. Yeah, yeah, no, feel free to also cut that whole part out, which I have a feeling you'll do, so that's fine. 741, 741. Okay. <laughs> so, thanks for hanging out. Now we're going to jump in now to the podcast with uh, Frank King. I hope you enjoy it. That's all. Here we go. <laughs> How are you doing these days? Are you staying home most of the time? Or what? Yeah. Uh, social isolating. I'm 63. I've uh, had some heart issues. Um, but, you know, I mean, I... I'm, I speak for a living, so when I'm not on a plane flying somewhere on a, or on a boat performing, um, I'm here. So it's not really that much different than, plus I have mental illness. And so I'm used to waking up in an uncertain world every morning. My self-care okay. plan, I've been teaching it by way of webinar, podcast, and radio interview for the last nine weeks because it serves, it, it, it actually is a skill set that's very valuable during this social distancing, social, social isolation. For normal people, neuro-normal people. Okay. So when you say you have mental illness, what what exactly does that mean? What what, what so mental I have illness a major, is it? Major, I have major depressive disorder and something called chronic suicidal ideation. Do you know? I do not. Well, it's uh, example uh, for me and people in my tribe. Suicide is always on the menu as an option, as a solution for problems large and small. And when I say small, a couple of years ago, my car broke down. I had three thoughts unbidden. I could get it fixed. I could buy a new one. I could just kill myself. That's chronic suicidal okay. ideation. Or you're sitting at a railroad crossing, trains come, and you're thinking, you know, I pulled out on the tracks. Oh, wow. That would do it. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I, I've, I've noticed something uh, as once I became a father, I've had dark notions of this, not of the same as what you're talking about, but I'm, I'm, I started envisioning a lot of negative things happening to my daughter and how I would react to it. Uh, yeah. Where we'd be walking down, we walked walking on the beach one time and we were heading, approaching this bar area where they had an outdoor patio and a bunch of people were drinking and having, being loud and whatnot. And I started imagining what if, uh, something happened and uh, a, a bottle flew towards her and, and I, I, I was holding her hand as this was happening. And what snapped me out of that, vision was her saying ow because i was squeezing her hand <laughs> it was like oh no so it, it, the dark thoughts that uh that come around that have uh, definitely become more and more as uh my daughter grows older and the, the world the scary world can affect her in certain ways but uh as far as going to that extreme I, I, that's something i i can't i can't uh wrap my, my, my mind around yeah it's and it's 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 something that many people don't know about. It's something that clinicians I've talked to go, what? Uh, and almost every time I speak, there's someone in the audience who has it. They don't know it has a name. They think they're just some kind of freak because of the way they think. And when they hear me say that, tell that story about my car, they, they realize, oh, my God. I mean, I'm not alone. And they come up afterwards and sometimes crying because they first time in their life, they realize uh, they're not alone. And that's kind of the, that's the, uh, that's my why right there. Interesting. Cause yeah, cause I, I in my mind, suicide was always just a, a thought that creeps in or if you get, if you start feeling bad enough, then you start entertaining the idea of suicide. But for that to be, a, that's a constant, always their thought then. 
Yeah, it's like DOS running under Windows or Muzak in a store. You know, Muzak, okay. <laughs> you don't really notice it until either a song comes on you really like or really hate. Okay. <laughs> and so it just bubbles up every now. I mean, I've had the thought for so long. It's not really, it's not really a serious thought because I've, you know, I've just I've had them for. It's like my brain goes, you could just kill yourself. Well, there's an idea. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah, and most people at some point in their lives. I've had a you know moment or two where you divorce, bankruptcy, lost a job, and I think, oh yeah, screw it, I could just kill myself. But it's transient, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't last. It may be depressed over time, but you know, again, it passes. Right. Uh, so, so the kind of people that would uh, the, the jump off the the bridge. Uh, there's a whole documentary I think I watched a long time ago. The, the people that go to the Golden Gate Bridge and they jump off, and it was focusing on the people that survived it, and how as, as soon as they jumped, they they thought they they regretted it instantly. Oh but, yeah. So a, I've got an acquaintance named Kevin Hines who survived the drop. No. And he said the same thing. And as soon as he let go. But is that something that now exits your mind or now that you, you're glad you survived and then does those thoughts come back again? I want to try again. Oh yeah. I mean, they're there all the time. Uh, ironically, they, it's kind of my superpower. Sadly. Uh, the, I heard somebody once say, if it weren't for my chronic suicidal ideation, I would have killed myself a long time ago. Because what? suicide is, there's a, mis, there's a misconception, you know, why does so-and-so want to kill themselves? I get that question a lot. And I say, chances are they didn't want to kill themselves. They just wanted to end the pain. And so having suicide on the table as an option, you know, I, I said, my book's going to be called Starting the Conversation on Suicide, Living in the Exit Row, which is where I sit next to the door and at hmm. any time I can pop it and go. So it allows me to, 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 um, withstand a great deal of pain knowing that I can make it end any time. Oh, and, interesting. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, huh. it, it, it odd superpower, but it's, uh, and I'm watching Netflix. I'm watching a show called afterlife with Ricky Gervais. Oh yes. Great show. And in the first, second episode his boss trying to cheer him up and Ricky goes, look, don't try to cheer me up. He goes, I'm depressed and suicidal. If it gets too bad, I'll just kill myself. Sadly, it's kind of my superpower. And I'm like, oh, oh my God, either Ricky <laughs> or somebody on staff. And then later in another episode, a couple of guys come up and try to rob him at knife point. And Ricky goes, well, what are you going to do if I don't give you the money? And they go, we're going to kill you. And he goes, well, you know, for a lot of people, that would be an inducement to turn over my wallet. <laughs> and I've had fantasies like that where I'm in a gas station somewhere. Somebody pulls a gun and goes, give me your money. And or what? Okay. I'll tell you, I've been trying to do that for decades. Interesting. You know, and if I'd known if I'd known it was gonna happen on this day in this seventy six station, you know, death by dumbass, I would have just relaxed <laughs> and waited for it to happen. Okay. But, the, 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 do you find that it, it kind of makes you take more chances, more grasp more opportunities as they come along? Yeah, I think it makes you less risk averse. Okay. Uh because it's you know, I I mean, we had uh, during the recession the last one. <gasps> I, and uh, I'm sorry, I, ever, I didn't think I'd ever have to use that phrase in the last recession. Uh, lost everything in the bankruptcy. We worked for it for 25 years. And I, had a, I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like, literally. Oh. And so uh, Malcolm Gladwell in a book called David and Goliath talks about things like that. You know, things like, a, like a, the Blitz in London during the Second World War, people who survived that. Or a child who loses a parent before the age of 15. All horrific things. But, or, or putting a gun in your mouth. 
if you come out the other side of that, when the smoke clears and you're still standing, he says it's a mother and father of courage. It makes you far less risk averse because you've, and people ask me about the pandemic here. Well, look, here's the deal. Is, is the pandemic hard on you? Here's the deal. I've had two aortic valve replacements, a double bypass, a heart attack, three stents. I, I know what the barrel of my gun tastes like, and I lost to a puppet on Star Search. This is not the worst thing that's ever happened. <laughs> wow. Yeah. All right. So you've been prepping for this uh, for a long time then. <laughs> yeah. And again, because um, I, I talk to neuronormal people all the time. Guy called me up because, Frank, you work in mental health. I go, yeah, I'm not a clinician, but sort of. He goes, I, listen, there's got to be a mental health term for this. He goes, I will, I will describe it. He goes, well, I'm really depressed. Uh, can't eat, can't sleep. Um, when I do sleep, I don't want to get out of bed, you know, even to wash my hair. Uh, you know, I don't, I just can't. I, is there a name for that? I go, yeah, it's called Saturday. Uh, <laughs> it's my life, man. It's, it's, so I teach people you need a schedule. You need to set your alarm. You need to get up at the same time, go to bed at the same time, plan your meals, plan your fun, plan your exercise, you know. And there's some other techniques you can use to help you get out of your own head mm -hmm. uh, and control and, and tell them, control the things you can control. Um, I, that's what I try to do. I, when my business went away for the rest of the year, speaking is gone. Oh, yeah. For, for, in, in, until when? When's the next time you think you can get out? Not well, sure. I, I don't know. I've got a virtual one in the middle of June. Okay. It was originally going to be a live one, and now it's going to be virtual. I've got a lead on a virtual slash live, depending on, in October. But everything else I had, I was having a, I was having a great year. And then a half dozen gigs, either rescheduled, most of them rescheduled for next year. The rest of them just canceled. So it's just whoop, gone. Wow. And I can't control it. But I can control the number of podcasts I do, you know, with as a guest or as a host. We have a, thing, a show called um, Suicide, no, Suicide Prevention Punchline. Like a lifeline. Okay. It's for comics. The comics kill themselves so regularly. Um, so, you know, I can do that. I can email into my solicitations. I'm, I'm loading up my, I just passed, I think I started around 11,000 connections on LinkedIn. And when this began, I'm now at 14.5. Wow. Okay. I'm trying to build up and plant seeds for. Yes. I got a call from radio station Iowa. Oh. I'd flown next to somebody on a plane. I made them laugh. And just so happened, the woman's husband bought three little stations in Iowa. And everybody's depressed. So she says to him, hey, listen, I got Frank King's card. You know, I bet he's got ideas about surviving this. And I do have a whole keynote called Social Distancing and Staying Sane. She goes, he, he gives some tips, tells some jokes, maybe 15 minutes a day on the station. <laughs> and so I, I've been doing it the last three weeks. And then I suggested, because I've got a friend who's an agricultural comedian, the number one ag comedian in the world. Agricultural said, comedian? Yeah, he's a farmer for 30 years. Okay. He speaks to the BASF, the seed companies, the, you know, those guys. And I said, you know, this is a big ag area. You should give me and Jerry an hour. Uh, we'll call it the funny farm, because he's also mentally ill. All right. So it's Frank and Jerry and the Funny Farm, and and we he talks a lot about ag and and so that's kind of a silver lining of the of the pandemic is we'd always want to do a show together and an hour is a piece of cake and right so yeah and so it, it may turn in some may make a little money on ads and stuff Very so nice. again I'm just trying to do whatever I can what I can control <clears throat> during this period which is what I teach people who are neuronormal look. You can't determine when we're all going to go back to work. 
or when phase two or three is going to happen or whatever. Right. It's going to recur. So you just got to, you know, you got to control the things you, uh, you know, can control. So uh, speaking of teaching uh, the neuronormals, uh, I want to talk about the word, the actual word and phrasing of uh, depression. Because uh, I hear depression tossed around by everybody, and it's all, it's all over social media. Like, oh, I'm, I'm so depressed right now because uh, the the band that I was going to go see can't they can't perform anymore. So now I'm depressed about it. Like, yeah. I don't think you're using that word correctly. Uh, well, there's um, situational depression, which this is for most people. Okay. You know, and, and sometimes it gets bad enough where you have to take medication for a while. Oh, for for uh, situational depression. Yeah. Oh, she had a cousin who she was happy all her life, but her husband died from um, encephalitis or something. She'd taken care of him for a number of years, and she just wore her down. And she woke up in the morning and she couldn't get out of bed. So she went to a psychologist, and then the psychiatrist got some antidepressants. Took her for about six months, and then one day she realized, I don't think I need them anymore. So oh. you can have the situational transient trend, uh, depression. Um, what I have is called major depressive disorder. It's different. It's generally genetic, hardwired for it. My, it runs in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. And major depressive disorder it lasts two days to two weeks, depending on who you are. And it recurs. It's like a wheel with a flat spot on it. Every so often... You know, you bought them out. Okay. And I began taking medication when I, three years ago when I turned 60. And it shortened the uh, duration to from three days to two. And it spread out the, the, how often it happens. Okay. So it doesn't make me giddy. It just takes the edge off of daily. And then it makes the rest of it, when I do cycle down, it makes it a lot less unpleasant. Okay, so it's like a fix-a-flat for that, that wheel. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Takes a couple days for the blow back up, but yeah, that's exactly right. All right. Yeah, so that's, that's amazing. Yeah, so depression, you know, that, that's – because I've been – with my kind of depression, and people will tell you this, I've been most depressed at some of the best times in my life. Hmm. You know, look at Robin Williams. Millions of dollars in the bank. They had a contract for another movie. He had lost a sitcom, but – he also had the Parkinson-like illness, had heart surgery, can make depress you. And so, and I think, I believe bipolar. He would live with bipolar. Okay. But, you know, life wasn't that bad overall from the outside looking in. And I've, I've been most depressed at some of the best times. I always worried what would happen when, when things were really bad and I got depressed. Well, we found out. And by the way, um, I did put a gun in my mouth with the spoiler alert. I didn't pull the trigger. Okay. All right. I said that at a keynote one time. A buddy of mine came up afterwards. He never heard me say that. He goes, Hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, Hey, man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? Right. <laughs> yeah. It's that, that's the kind of humor that goes into my keynote is, uh, you know, personal stories, not jokes so much. Yeah. Personal stories about like that, the things that have happened. I'm talking to a meeting plan with NAMI, National Alliance of Mental Illness, Oregon. I'm doing a keynote. And I go, Michelle, what do you want me to cover? She goes, uh, and she knows she's well aware I put her gun in my mouth. She goes, I don't know, give me a couple of bullet points. So I let that hang in the air. And she goes, <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, God. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, and there's a, when people see me up on stage, obviously high functioning, and I'm, I'm, the humor makes the information go down a lot easier. 
especially for neurotypical people. When I tell the audience I put a gun in my mouth, you can see all the mentally ill people do this. Oh, they realize you know we hear the same music, we have we have context. Mm-hmm. You know? Whereas normal people who have a real tough time wrapping their mind around why anybody, how bad it could get so bad that you would want to end it. And again, it's all about pain. Okay, yeah. I had a heart attack in the woods with the dogs. Oh. I was half a mile over the logging trail with the dogs. Had my cell phone, but I got T-Mobile, so I didn't have cell service. <laughs> Never fails to get a laugh, by the way. Because yeah. <laughs> it's <is> so true. <laughs> and, and there's another myth, urban legend, I guess, whatever, that a lot of people think if you're depressed and suicidal, you're that way 24-7, 365. And if you're, you know, if you get medication and therapy and, you know, you've got a self-care plan, it's pretty good. I have more good days than bad days. I mean, if I'd wanted to die a really socially acceptable death, I could have just sat down on the trail and waited for the heart attack to run its course. Only the dogs would know I chose. Mm. Because the paramedics would find me. They'd go, oh, you got a cell phone? Oh, T-Mobile. <laughs> uh, but it would look like a heart attack, and they'd just assume I couldn't get out. Right. But I was in a good place that morning. I was, I mean, it was, it was literally killing me. I had to walk out a half mile. I'm going down the hill. People always ask, what are you thinking about? You know, you see a light relatives thinking about your wife but i was thinking i had a ted talk my first one coming up in two weeks about suicide prevention okay fine because i'm thinking i I think of all the people i could have saved if i got just given that talk and And that was my first one and the reason i um was late or forgot forgot all about you (laughs) i did a ted talk in durango colorado called mental health and the orgasm treat your depression single-handedly oh I right. love my iPhone, but it's my second favorite handheld device. Okay. <laughs> and it was an amazing talk, and I got a standing ovation. All right. And it has to be submitted to Ted. And Ted said no. And they won't tell me why not. Sometimes they will say no, because if you have scientific stuff quoted in there and you don't have sources. But I had pretty much two sources for every fact I put in there. Okay. Uh, it, it, was a, it was an amazing talk. Uh, I talk about how um, – is your – uh, podcast PG thirteen. Uh, it, it is no, it is not no. <laughs> we, it, we can go I mean, anywhere you'd like to go. Oh, good, okay, yeah. But I don't want to offend your listeners. Um, no, not at all. Yeah, because I mean, all the stuff in there is it's you know it's not like a comedy club. Well, there's a comedy club set and it's very funny. But you know, I go on stage and I go, you know, you probably notice I don't have any PowerPoint slides. And the committee said to me, "Aren't you going to do PowerPoint?" I go, "It's it's on masturbation orgasm. Where am I get, going to get the slides?" Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I played like I was doing the, you know, the clicker. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, uh, it, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, oh, I can't wait. Uh, Pearl, um, uh, Pearl necklace. Oh yeah. If you last for the ZZ Top fans, um, yeah. It just and then a little later on, I, I quote a fact that. Men who masturbate more frequently have a 20% lower incidence of prostate cancer. And they define more frequently as 21 or more times a month. So I said, if threshold is 21 times a month, I am immortal. <laughs> yeah, got to cover it. The committee said to me, Frank, you know, with the, with the prostate thing, you need to give them an action item. I said, do you, do you really think I need to, to encourage men to masturbate? It's like barking at a dog. It's self-reinforcing. I right. said, okay, I, I, mean, I, I want to keep everybody happy. So, gentlemen, here's your action item. Yeah. Treat that thing like it owes you money. <laughs> and, all right, I got a line in there my wife hated. She goes, don't do that line. I go, I think it's going to hit. I think it's going to kill. 
So I did it, and the line was this. I said, right in the middle, uh, apropos of nothing, I said, do you guys know why they call an orgasm an orgasm? They're like, I go, because nobody can spell. <laughs> <laughs> and it killed. <laughs> and I, I brought down the fourth wall, and I said to the audience, oh, man, I'm so glad you liked that. My wife hated that. <laughs> Yeah, and and it's the only standing ovation I've ever gotten at a TEDx. Okay, it's probably the best one that day, and it's probably never good. So what I did was, I I thought, well, you know what? I'm just going to pitch it to another committee because if it doesn't go up on YouTube, it never happened. And so TEDx Temecula, they wanted ideas that were out there. All right. So I just submitted, and I just happened to have a tape. They asked me to make for that one a three minute tape. You know, um, on the idea. And these guys wanted two minute. Well, over the during the pandemic, I've taught myself with something called Wondershare. It's a Filmora Nine. I've taught myself to edit roughly. Oh, okay. So I took the three minute and brought it down to one minute fifty eight. You know, and it basically me going, you know, um, masturbation. It's a victimless crime. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, unless you're talking about like a millions for Matozoa, I go. You know, there's a word I never thought I'd use past tenth grade. <laughs> I heard a joke once. Uh, they were uh, talking about masturbation. That uh, and also, okay. Uh, the definition for uh, for for rape uh, is if you're under the influence of anything, uh, you cannot willfully say yes. So if you were to masturbate while you were drunk, are you then raping yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I say in the talk, I go, you know, um, you can't tell me it wasn't a big day in your life when you discovered this little one piece home entertainment center. Right. <laughs> and they did a survey. Uh, some some adult toy company did a survey, and they found that 96% of men admit they do it, and 76% of women admit they do it, and the rest of them are lying. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah, anyway, that's I've done five TED Talks. I don't think number five is ever going to see one, but I'm going to keep submitting the idea because it's just too good. It was just too good a talk, and I had too much fun doing it. Okay. Well, what, what does okay, it take okay. What does it take right. to be uh, – to, to, get a TED talk or to be, uh, allowed that. Cause oh. TED, TED talks to me are there. They're on this high level of, uh, talks, I guess, so that you can give. Well, there's TED talks, which is the international three day Bill Gates, you know, those guys. Mm-hmm. And then every community of any size has a one or two TED X talks, X meaning local, uh, independent run by the local folks. And this happened to be this. I did that one in Durango that probably won't see the light of day, but I just applied to, um, Temecula, TEDx Temecula, and I just apply all over the country. You don't get paid for it. You have to pay your own travel. But as a speaker, having those big red letters behind you, especially when you got four of them across the bottom of your Gmail and a signature, yeah, and hopefully number five coming up at some point, um, it's useful for branding and marketing and that kind of thing. You um, you go online, you type in TEDx application 2020, and up come these links. And usually it's about four to six months out because it takes time to get the applications and then do the auditions and then, you know, prepare. And you just fill an application. Basically, what's your idea worth, worth spreading? Uh, why are you the person should be delivering it? And I said, you know, I gave my mental health history. And in fact, I'm a speaker on mental health. And then um, what's the audience going to learn? What's, what are the takeaways? How are they going to be changed? And I talked about the, the the beneficial effects, mental and physical, of an orgasm beyond the obvious. And 
you know, no, no copay, no deductible. <laughs> and you know what? You can, you can do it anywhere that's relatively private. And in my TED talk, I said, you know, I did it in a Boeing 737. In the uh, all right. I joined the Mile High Club. I was by myself. So I got an individual <laughs> membership. But... <laughs> so that's basically what you have to give them. Then they ask for, you know, your experience. Um, and sometimes they want a video of you speaking, not on that topic, but just make sure you can walk with a mic and talk. Okay. So relatively simple. And I usually cut and paste all the answers into a Word doc because the, the questions recur. Yeah. Maybe in a different order. Maybe we'll ask a little differently. Maybe fewer characters, but basically the same. And I've got several other. I'm pitching one called depressive realism. Maybe the glass really is half empty. Oh. Because there is some evidence that people who have depression see the world more accurately than people who don't. Okay. That people who, there's something called negative negative cognitive bias, meaning people with depression, the world seems worse to them. But there's also positive cognitive bias that people who are neuronormal are wearing the rose tinted glasses. And so it, it there is some science that people who are depressed actually see the world more clearly than and that may be one of the reasons we're depressed is we're like, Oh, this is really screwed up. Yeah, that's and something we tend that... to be more empathetic, mm-hmm. so we feel other people's pain more acutely. Okay, again, because we so yeah, so that's that's my. All right. And the, the third one I'm pitching is um, going viral. How the cancel culture and the coronavirus kill my comedy career. <laughs> okay. Because if you look me up on Google, if you put in Frank King quarantine coronavirus, Uh-oh. you will find a shit ton. I mean, I was on the cover of the Daily News in London and the Independent and the Sun and New York Post. I was on Entertainment Night, Inside Edition, uh, Good Morning America. I mean, I didn't appear, but my story did because I left Cambodia at the beginning of the pandemic, flew myself home, and I was on a cruise ship over there. Okay. Now, what people forget or don't get is there were two cruise ships, Diamond Princess, Ravaged by Flu. Right. All in America, Westerdam, none of the 2,500 people on the ship, passengers, crew, and staff ever had it. But people, when I came back, came through Seattle, made the mistake of speaking to the press, every article starts off, comedian jumps quarantine. <laughs> we were never quarantined. So they all think I've got it. Oh, I see. Being an asshole for coming back. Guy called me here. Uh, we had to change my home phone number. I deactivated three social media accounts for a month. Oh, wow. Yeah, but... Some guy called me on my cell phone. You came back to this county to kill everybody. No, I got a list and you just made the VIP section. <laughs> the guy actually called up and threatened to kill me. Wow. I know what you work out. I'm coming to kill you. I said, well, listen, you know, I've been trying to do that for four decades. <laughs> so when you come, I want you to know this. I don't want to die, but I'm not scared of it. So just keep that in mind when you come. Quit All right. It. Yeah. <laughs> that, so. That'll disarm somebody very quickly. But the, the, yeah, you know, because who wants to fight with somebody with nothing to lose? Right. Yes, that is dangerous. That is that is the most dangerous <laughs> opponent. I'm I'm old, but I'm you know I'm, I'm vicious. Yeah, so. you, you mentioned something that reminded me of, um, and this is these are thoughts that I was having. Oh my god, I guess back in high school, where people would ask me uh, about glass, uh, glass half full or half empty, uh, positive yeah. or negative, and like I'm I'm yeah. not so much of a I'm not a negative person I'm not a positive person I feel I'm more of a realist where I see the world as it is and yeah. turns out it's mostly negative <laughs> is what it comes down to well I'm an optimistic realist okay 
I think it, it's a friend of mine who's Jewish says you're you're like a Jewish grandmother. You can find everything that's wrong with anything anybody's got an idea to do. There should be a Jewish grandmother on every board of directors. No, that's not going to like. Not going to like it. I'll tell you what. <laughs> they, they can tell you everything that could possibly go wrong. Yeah, it's just mighty pants. <laughs> so that's. I think they should have a depressed person on every board of directors to go. No. Uh. Uh-uh. Yeah. See, I, I see that as being prepared and seeing it from all angles. Like, all right, these are all the things that can go wrong. How can we prepare for as much of them as we can prepare for? And the idea behind the TEDx is because I like to have a point is to reframe depression as not as a disability, but an ability. Okay. The, the ability to see things as they actually are. Hmm. Uh, the third run I did was mental with benefits, the evolutionary advantages of mental illness. Because everybody I've ever met with mental illness who wasn't completely dysfunctional had some kind of superpower. My sister has anxiety and depression. She goes, superpower? We're not the X-Men. I mean, we're not the Xanax. Yeah, we're not the X-Men. The Xanax. All right. <laughs> but they're artistic. They're musical. They're comedians. They're writers. It's just, and I thought, this can't be a coincidence. So I did a little research. Now, the funny thing is, I think, I did the research. I found, you know, and Ted came down and put an editorial note on my TEDx. Note. And it says this. There is no scientific evidence that being mentally ill gives you superpowers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the fun, I think the odd thing is that it starts off like this. What if those of us living with a mental illness are not living with a genetic mutation, but an amazing evolutionary adaptation? And what if, as Malcolm Gladwell says in his book, David and Goliath, such things are a desirable disadvantage? You would never wish it on anybody. Wow. But it brings with it. And if you can convince a child, look, yeah, you have a disability, but here's what you don't know. You have a set of abilities your peers can't touch. It would change the frame for kids and their peers. Yeah. I met a dad on a ship as I was preparing for that. His kid's dyslexic. I was describing it to him. I told him, I said, you know, dyslexics have better peripheral vision generally. And they have the amazing ability to spot the anomaly in anything. I said, don't ever play Where's Waldo for money with a dyslexic. (laughs) Okay. They're going to nail it. Uh, and he goes, Frank, I have read every book, every blog post. I've been to every, you know, whatever convention, doctors. Nobody's ever told me there was anything positive about having dyslexia. You have got to do that talk. So that's I think that's what kids need to hear is that, you know, that you are special in ways that, you know. Yeah, it may not be the conventional way that other people think of as special, but there there is a special ability there. Uh that's yeah. One a friend of mine, he has a kid that uh, uh, he has autism, uh, and it's he he gets a lot of um, people are not as patient with him uh, as they are with yeah. other people. Uh, but if if you take the time to kind of dive in and get on his level, then it's it's uh, we have so much fun just playing around and uh, whether it be video games or uh, jumping on the trampoline over by his by his place. Uh, it's there's connections that can be made there. It's just it's a different kind of language almost. They, well, a friend of mine who has uh, Asperger's mm-hmm. uh, said it's it's different music. It's like some one one person's hearing country. It's the same song, but there's a country version and a jazz version. Mm. And the problem with social, oftentimes they miss social cues. And if you think about it, social uh, conversation is like improvisational jazz. In improvisational jazz, somebody plays and stops, and somebody picks up the tune and plays and stops, and they pass it back and forth. 
and conversations a lot like that. You say something, I say something. Right. And if you, I said to her, what, what cues do you miss? She goes, how would I know? Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's the, I met a guy whose son, uh, Mason was autistic. And I said, well, just out of curiosity, does Mason have any superpowers? He goes, He's super athletic. We bought a swim club membership. Within two weeks, he taught himself the Australian crawl, breathe on both sides. I taught myself to breathe on both sides, but it took me a month. <laughs> he said, well, how about a land? He goes, he's lightning fast. He goes, we're at Special Olympics. All the kids are lined up for the 100-yard dash. Gun goes off. Well, all the kids take off running except Mason. He has no idea what the gun's about. Oh. So he goes, I felt like the movie Forrest Gump. Run, Mason, run! <laughs> So Mason takes off. The kids have got a 20-yard head start. Mason takes off, catches them, passes them, wins the race. He's just that fast. Wow. I said, now here's the deal. Here's where the value is in that. He's a little strange, you know. Mm-hmm. But when it comes time to pick up teams for, let's say, touch football, um, there's two captains, you know, they're, they're, and their companions are discussing who to pick. And one says, look, pick the kid Mason first. He goes, the weird kid? I know he's weird, but man... <laughs> He runs like the wind. And being picked first at an age like that can have a big impact on your later life. Okay. And being picked last and being the weird kid. Absolutely, yes. So I said that that so my, my point the point of the whole TED talk was you know, treat the disability, enhance, embrace, and energize the abilities. And direct them in career path. Kids got O C D, should be an architect, a banker, um, an accountant where people value attention to detail and the right answer. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I, I was watching some of the uh, some of the videos that you that you had out there, and th- you just sparked the memory. Uh, as as far as how to deal with somebody, or not deal with somebody, that's wrong terminology. How to talk to somebody that, that would have this condition, that, that would have suicidal thoughts. Uh, you were giving uh, hints on this is oh, what you yeah. should say and shouldn't say. But as far as us. Uh, Neonormatives, uh, or I don't know. I, I feel like I'm crazy in a different way. But uh, as far <laughs> as, as far as if you know somebody has a condition uh, like yours, uh, should we kind of walk on eggshells to kind of uh, not maybe hopefully not trigger any kind of thoughts that may lead to other things? No, another myth. Uh, there's a myth that you should never mention the S word suicide in front of people who are depressed because it might give them the idea mm-hmm. suicide. What a great idea! Oh. Why the hell did not think of that? Okay. Trust me. Cross their mind. Okay, let's do this, Sim. How do you know somebody's depressed? Because I get that question a lot. Well, here's a way. If they begin to withdraw from social activities that you really used to enjoy, if they um, eat too much, can't eat, sleep too much, can't sleep, if they're letting their personal hygiene go. And I speak to dentists because they have a high rate of suicide. Mm-hmm. I said, look, if you get a patient in there, they get in the chair and they're not really put together the way they normally are. Hair's a little dirty, clothes aren't really clean. And you look in their mouth, and they're letting their teeth slide. That may be an indication hmm. that they're depressed. And the question comes up, what do you say to them? Well, here's what you don't say. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. Have you tried to show up? Yeah. What you do say is, look, I'm here for you, and I mean it. I know you're not lazy, crazy, or self-absorbed. I know that depression is a mental illness. The good news is, with time and treatment, things will get better. I'll take the time, and I'll help you get the treatment and mean it. And then the big question, the one that's most difficult to ask, and if you can't ask this, find somebody who can. Are you having thoughts of suicide? Just like that. And um, if they are, let's say they say they are having thoughts of suicide, 
Well, first, let's say, how about they say they don't, but you suspect they are? How can you tell? Well, they, they talk about death and dying. They Google death and dying. Death and dying appears as a theme in their artwork, their music, their writing. They begin to gather the means, pills, gun, ammunition. They begin to get their fares in order. Begin giving away prized possessions because they want to make sure the things go to the people they want them to go to when they're gone, especially if they give away a pet. And there's a counterintuitive one that's extremely dangerous. If they've been depressed forever and then all of a sudden for no apparent reason, they're really happy. And you're happy because they're happy. They may have chosen time, place, method. They know the pain is coming to an end and they're really happy about it. Mm. So what do you say? Well, let's say they say they have, are having thoughts of suicide. You say you have a plan. If they have a plan, what is the plan? If it's detailed, try to get them on the phone with the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. They, if they won't pick up the phone, you call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline or text HELP to 741-741. text line, same thing. And the volunteer will do their best to get the phone into the hand of the person who's in crisis. If they're a danger immediately to themselves or others, you have to call 911. Now, that's going to buy them a three-day involuntary stay in the right. community with no shoes for your belt. But, but they'll be alive. They'll unfriend you on Facebook, but they'll still be alive. Now, let's say they've got a plan, but it's not particularly detailed. You know, they're depressed, thought suicide, but it's kind of, you know. Um, I suggest the next question is, well, tell me this. Are you going to kill yourself? If they say no, I say, well, tell me why not. Make them give voice to my family, my friends, my pets, my kids. Uh, my reason is, uh, and I discovered this uh, this year, actually, is all these people come up to me after the presentations. When I did a TED Talk in Pensacola about, uh, it's called Suicide, the Secret of My Success. <laughs> <clears throat> well, because I was married to the wrong woman, depressed. Uh, should have never gotten married, but opposites attract. She was pregnant, I wouldn't. Um, you have great titles, by the way. All your titles are fantastic. I love them. <laughs> Well, and that, that is what I teach because I do TEDx coaching. And I, they get a couple hundred applications. That title has got to jump off the page. Yes. Suicide, the secret of my success, dead man talking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, even better. I, I pitched it six times. The sixth time I pitched it to a TEDx, they, they call me up. No, you don't have to audition. You're off. <laughs> because they were... You know, and then I had a video that went with it, talked about why. Well, depressed, married to my first wife. Lovely woman, but wrong woman. Selling insurance, hated the business, great business, hated it. And I thought to myself, you know, if I don't do something different, I'm going to kill myself sooner rather than later. And my second thought was, what do I got to lose? Oh. Quit my job, divorce my wife, try comedy, if it works great. If it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. So, again, Nothing more powerful on the planet than somebody with absolutely nothing to lose. I put it all on one roll of dice, and you know if it comes up craps, then I just kill myself. I would. I'm not no. You know, it's like standing on the edge of a cliff. There's a brush fire coming up behind you. And there's like a ten story drop to a beautiful deep lake. You, if you stand there, you're gonna get fried. Mm. If you jump, you know you've, you're gonna reach terminal velocity in ten stories, but you might survive. And swim away. So is there really any choice at that point? Right. I'm going. So that that that's how suicide is secret of my And I've met a lot of entrepreneurs and comedians and other entertainers that are the very same, you know, living the life they didn't think they belonged in, had a dream, and they thought, you know, if I don't do something different, if I don't pursue this, 
I'm going to kill myself. Well, people kept coming up after my show to talk about whatever their issue was or their parents' issue or their child's issue or whatever. And But mostly it's the people who come up with chronic suicidal ideation. Young woman came up after a college show. She goes, thank you for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She goes, I got to tell you, it made me weep. That'll make you weep. She goes, well, you told the story about your car. You know, get it fixed, buy a new one, just kill yourself. She goes, I've been having those thoughts all my life. I just thought I was some kind of freak. I had no idea it had a name. And when I realized for the first time in my life that I was not alone, I wept. Hmm. So it hit me January. I'm sort of like the character in It's a Wonderful Life, uh, George Bailey. Okay. I've been shown over and over what people's lives would be like if I weren't there to speak and let them know they're not alone. Mm. You know, because I keep steering them. I think just far enough off the path of suicide, they may live a normal life. So if I kill myself, I would take every one of those people with me. Oh. And a buddy of mine goes, you can't live with that? I go, no, dude, I can't die with it. So, and then I realized I can't kill myself. (laughs) (laughs) I'm stuck. The victim of your own success. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, the comedian in me said, took it to the next step, next level. Suppose I did. Then I'd be chased through eternity by these people. You couldn't wait a week. Yeah. You, you talked about in, uh, in, in one of your, your TED Talks about there, there were specific moments where somebody was about to do something and then they were turned off from it. Uh, and, and for you, it was uh, your life insurance. Uh, you were calling in for to check in on your life insurance claim, and you were uh, two months short of being outside of the suicide uh, window. Pause, yeah. yeah. 24 months, you have to have it. Uh, now Nowadays, they prohibit it. But back then, it was, it's, called, it's actually called the um, not, uh, incontestability clause. Okay. Suicide being the most, um, the one you hear about most. But here's the deal. Let's say you bought a life insurance policy and you told the agent you didn't smoke. And then two years and a day later, you die of lung cancer. And they go, I, the guy smoked. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> you had two years to figure that out. And you didn't. So his, his, his heirs get the money. Hmm. So I had, I had to, 24 months was my number. And I had the policy 22. But again, what saved me, ironically, was I thought, well, two months, you know, two months in a day, I can kill myself. So I, I can, you know, I can... I can live with that. Um, Victor Frankl said, um, you can stand almost anything, I'm paraphrasing, if you have a strong enough why. Okay. You can live through almost anything if your why is strong enough. Yeah. Why, why you're doing it. And so, I, you know, I, I wasn't going to leave my wife brokenhearted and broke. Yeah. And and uh, suicide has three, it's kind of like a three-legged stool. Uh, you socially isolate one leg. You uh, have crossed the barrier where you figure, I can do it. And the third is a burdensomeness. You believe the world would be better off without you. Now, it's an irrational thought, uh, but I, I would work more dead than alive. Now, people say suicide is a selfish act. Not in my mind. In my mind, I was leaving the world a better place as my wife would get a million bucks. She could restore herself financially. You know, people go, I love when people go, there's no solution for this. Oh, yes, there is. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to like it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And uh, pardon the uh, horrible pun, it would be the final solution. It would be. (laughs) It's it's just, yeah. So, again, you see somebody get on stage, talk about it, laugh about it. It's a little uncomfortable in the beginning. 
but they relax after a while and it I want to make talking about depression and suicide as easy as talking about sports or the weather. That would oh, be nice. By the way, you know the one on masturbation orgasm? Yeah. <laughs> then the talker go, you know, people don't talk much about suicide or depression. They really don't talk much about it. I go, if you mention the word depression and suicide, everybody's got a story. If you're at a cocktail party and you mention the words masturbation or orgasm, everybody's got someplace else to be. Yeah. Oh, look at the time. Yeah. Ah, unfortunate. That. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's a weird hot-button issue uh, that shouldn't be. Because uh, it, it, it was actually, and I realized this myself, uh, I, I let my daughter play video games where there's more violence in there than there should be. But if there's any kind of like sex type of things, I'm like, all right, we're not playing that. You're, <laughs> you're, you're cut out. Yeah, it's odd because, you know, in England, if you watch, I, I love British mysteries and police procedural shows. Mm-hmm. And you find they don't show a lot of gore. You know, there's, there's a guy with a knife. And the next thing you know, they're looking at the body. Okay. Uh, but there's a lot more sex. In the U.S., it's the reverse. It, yep. You know, it's... Right, yes. Head exploding but, and everything, yeah. Yeah, but God forbid, just, you know, you have a, a clothing malfunction. Right. <laughs> yeah, right after the boner pill ad. <laughs> 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 So, so the thing else I want to talk about is uh, you, you are your stand-up comedian. Yeah, 34 years. 34 years you've been doing stand-up. Uh, but and you're also ha- covering this very heavy, heavy issue. So at what point did those intersect? Did the comedy come first and then these kind of uh, talks, the TED Talks and whatnot, yeah. the information? I did. I started comedy uh 84 on April Fool's Day, did my first open mic night, went very well, and I decided that's what I was going to do. A year later, went on the road, my wife and I, for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop, no home, voicemail, post office box. Wow. And worked with Seinfeld, Dennis Miller, and Rosie, and Ellen DeGeneres, and Dana Carvey, and Kevin Nealon, and uh, Foxworthy, and Ron White, Bill Engvall. Back when they were just comics. Right. So you worked with everybody in comedy. Everybody. Yeah, pretty much. Everybody. everybody <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and, All the funny know, people. Everybody else got a sitcom. Yeah. Um, the, uh, and, and, and by the way, uh, went to work at a radio station in the mid-90s. It, that's how we came off the road. In my old hometown, Raleigh, North Carolina, I got hired by the number one morning show, which I drove to number six in 18 months. <laughs> You know, I didn't just drive it in the ground. I drove it in the middle earth. Okay. <laughs> uh, but while I was there, Ken Jeong was starting comedy, the go-to Korean. Oh, yes. From the uh, Hangover movies. Yeah. He was going to Duke Medical School. And so, uh, so I mean, I, there were comments I met a lot of, uh, you know, and there's a woman named Retta, a large black woman who's been, it was in the community center or the other show. Uh, like, Parks and Rec. Parks and Rec. Yeah. Yes. And then she got her own show, Two Girls or something. Yeah. Yeah, she and she started up with Mike Knights as well there, and I was the MC of Mike Knights. <clears throat> anyway, I uh, did did that, but when I got out of college, I spent six years selling insurance, and insurance they're big on motivational speakers. So I saw everybody who was you know Zig Ziglar and anybody, and I thought to myself, you know, I could do that. I just had something to teach people. Okay. And I all all that time I was because I wanted to make a living and a difference. And I was making a good living for 45 minutes. I was making people forget their problems, but I wanted to make a, a, you know, more impact. But again, I couldn't figure out what the hell. So after I put the gun in my mouth, thought about my family history, 
read a book by a woman named Judy Carter called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. Mm. Went into the book thinking I got nothing. And she walks you through the process of figuring out what it is you should be talking about. She calls it your heart story, the one that makes your heart sing. You know, the one you go to bed thinking about, wake up thinking about. And I, by halfway through, I'm like, oh, my God. That's <laughs> She's talking to me. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I used her book to put the first TEDx together. And I came out at age 52 as depressed and suicidal. Nobody knew. My family, my friends, my wife. But I'm my wife's about to push play when it went on YouTube. I go, stop. Oh. I got, about, I got to tell you about a half a dozen things you're not aware of. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, because, you know, people with depression and mental illness were great actors. Um, we cover up very well because we don't, don't want to burden somebody. So nobody knew. Everybody's like, you know, you can't be depressed. There's no way. Well, it's high-functioning depression. It's mm-hmm. kind of a double-edged sword. Somebody said to me, how do you know you're suicidal? I go, well, you know, the taste of gun oil is a big tip-off. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. But the I came out at that point. And, and so my first TED Talk allowed me to rebrand from a funny speaker to a speaker who's funny, begin talking about serious things. And then the, the TED Talks that followed, and then people began to realize that's what I did. I was a comedian. And by the way, the comedy, somebody said to me, does comedy keep you from getting booked at these serious gigs? No. <laughs> Just the opposite. They'd much rather have a comedian than a clinician. Right. And it helps, you know, it's like the old, um, was it uh, Mary Poppins, uh, sugar helps the medicine go down. A spoonful of sugar, yeah. Yeah, it makes the medicine go down. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, it's that. It's called lived experience. It's that relatability with the audience. And so what I try to do is relate to the people who are mentally ill and explain the mental illness to people who are neurotypical because they have difficulty wrapping their mind around. If I meet somebody, and I've had this happen several times, with a couple, a friend of mine here in town, husband's neuronormal, wife is terribly depressed. And he goes, I heard you were introduced as a mental health comedian. I was speaking on something entirely different, but they introduced me that way. He goes, what does that mean? I go out on my story. He goes, what do you think I ought to do? I said, you ought to have, you ought to sit down with her and watch my first TEDx talk. And so they did. And he goes, I'm watching her watching you. And the talk gets done and she goes, I cannot believe that. A, I didn't think people talked about this. B, I didn't think they're going to do it on YouTube. Right. In front of God and everybody. And it was an epiphany for her. She began to open up about her own and we would get together for coffee we do every month or so, we get together for what I call the crazy coffee clash. Get all my crazy friends together for coffee. We take off our game faces. Oh, nice. Just be ourselves for now. And t- talk really, you know, dark, really dark. <laughs> People have overheard us like. <laughs> somebody in locally jumped off a six-story building, and we're like, six stories? No way. You could survive that. <laughs> oh, not, not high please. enough? No, I'm going 10 at least. you got to hit terminal velocity. Or don't bother. Wow. The people behind us are like. <laughs> yeah and oh here's another one i said you know here's what i don't understand if you're gonna kill yourself don't jump off a bridge onto a freeway and onto somebody's poor soul's car whose life you're gonna ruin yeah you know get i mean commit to it buy the bomb vest go wrap your arms around some asshole and blow you both up do <laughs> the world a favor Oh my God! I've I've had uh, speaking of my daughter and all the dark thoughts. I, I imagined uh, one day if something were to happen to her, 
uh, I would become a vigilante uh, where I would just become obsessed with going after all the bad people in the world, kind of like oh, a yeah. like a John Wick or a Dexter type. Um, which, by the way, you, you mentioned Dexter. You talk about uh, your dark passenger. That's uh, a very similar kind of – I feel myself going that crazy. It's just something happened to my daughter uh, where like, all right, nothing else matters. If I'm going down, I'm going down, but I'm taking all these bad people with me. Yeah, I've got a list. Um, right. Well, and because my, I have a, uh, I made a mistake of telling a friend of mine one of my daydreams. <laughs> I mean, I've, it's in color. I got lighting. I got blocking. I got dialogue. <laughs> I got sound bites. Okay. I got done. He goes, I got to get better daydreams. Because I'm in the 76. I had this many times. It's a little station where I get my gas on the way to the airport. It's usually early in the morning. A picture guy comes in with a gun. Here we are again. You know, and in my, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. And anyway, I end up taking the gun away and kill him. And, you know, and put the gun on the counter, empty the gun, put the gun on the counter. Look, I go to the airport, here's my card, have the cops call me. <laughs> you know, I, they, I finally get together with the cops and they're like, you shot him. I go, yeah, well, you know, good guy's one, bad guy's zero. You got a problem with that? <laughs> I want to have those, those, those sound bites at my fingertips. Yeah. You know, when it's, uh, so, yeah, I've got the improv. I've got the. And, you know, and, and it's one of those things where it's something to do with my mentality, I think, is I picture, you know, how am I going to get out of it? When I go in a place, I always check the fire. I, just, I, I wonder how I'm going to get out. Oh, so I'm saying. I myself pouring a hot cup of coffee and I just don't, I don't put the lid off. And I walk up to him and he says, I'm going to kill you. I don't think so. Splash. Yep. No throat strike, drop, can't breathe, dies. Oh man, what a bummer! <laughs> yeah, I just reacted. I didn't know I was going to do that. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I am a comedian. I, I, yeah. I look, he was like six nine, <laughs> three hundred pounds. I'm one hundred fifty pounds soaking wet. I'm not going toe to toe with anybody. Yep. Yeah. I had a long stretch when uh, I'd go to either a, a bar or a friend's house or or any, anybody's house. As soon as walking, I walked in. There's the exits. That looks like the heaviest object I can lift if I need to use it to <laughs> hit somebody. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of uh, – but see, and, and that, that's the whole thing we're talking about as far as uh, negativity. It's like uh, realistically, if a fight were to break out, if something were to go down here, this is my exit strategy. How do yeah. I get out of here alive? I'm in a bathroom in uh, some of, some foreign country, uh, Grand Cam or something. It's dusk, so it's a little dark. There's no lights in the bathroom, but I can see. And I go in there and I hear somebody walking down the sidewalk outside the bathroom. And so I didn't even, I just stood there at the urinal facing the urinal, but I didn't unzip my pants. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm waiting. Yep. I'm figuring he's coming in. <laughs> so I'm not going to be there with my Johnson in my hand. I'm going to be, I'm going to be ready. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, but again, that's, uh, you know, that's my imagination, my vivid. Yeah. It's a it's a weird it's it's a weird powerful uh, thing, but maybe that's superpower as you were saying. That's, that's well, how it works. And, uh, sense of ob- uh, powers of observation. Um, I love to guess where people are from. It's just something I've gotten the habit of doing. And uh, stand at the hotel front desk the other day, and I said to the woman, "You're from Taiwan." She's like, <laughs> "I am, but how do you know?" I said, "Well, just your dialect, uh, facial features." I was at the U.S. border uh, with Canada. The United States Border Patrol guy was there. African-American gentleman named last name Thomas. I listened to a couple of words and I found out from a magician friend of mine. It's a mentalism trick. It's called a cold read. Cool. Yep. You kind of look them up and down, see how they dress, how they sound, name. Fate. So Mr. Thomas, I said, Mr. Thomas, you're from Georgia. Freeze. <laughs> he goes, I am, but how could you possibly? I said, you're asking the wrong question. 
What you should be asking is why is there not a comedian, mentalist, or magician at every border checkpoint? <laughs> Watching people, looking at people, reading people. Oh my God, that'd be great. Yes, about seventy-five percent of the time, I can, you know, twenty-five percent of the time, completely wrong. Right. I got in a cab one night. We locked eyes. He said a couple of words, and I said, "I don't even know where this place is." It's uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Blink about intuition. And so I heard that, and I just shot in the dark. I said, "You're from Azerbaijan." The guy slams on the brake. Bam! <laughs> he goes, "Are you CIA?" <laughs> <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a hobby. <laughs> Nobody guesses Azerbaijan. Uh, so, but that's yeah. what would make a great show. You wouldn't show the the uh, the fails. You'd show only the successes. And it's like, oh, this is amazing. He's he's By a superior. Of the time. And actually, um, when the recession hit, I decided on my bucket list was being a police officer. So I I, I uh, put an application to twelve departments in the state of Washington where we were living. And I was 52, but you can't discriminate based on age if you can pass the physical. Okay. And I passed the fitness test four times. Oh. And I got I made a short list in Seattle. And um, they would ask me at an oral board, what's the connection between comedy and policing? I said, well, we're both paid observers. <laughs> Comedy's in the anomaly. We notice things that other people just walk by. Same with police officers. You're like, why is the light on in that warehouse? Right. You pick up things that shouldn't be. The dog didn't bark, or the light that's on that shouldn't be. Or, you know, I was going to the airport and I saw a, a cargo by with a sign on the top uh, for one of the sandwich shops that delivers. And it's four in the morning. I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't think. Right. This doesn't yeah. add up. Well, why four? No, that's not. Uh... Yeah. Plus, also the connection between a comedy and <clears throat> police is um, Gutenberg and the uh, Police Academy. That's. That's a big one. If you can make sound effects, especially, then you're you're totally yeah. good. <laughs> but I can also, um, after all this time reading crowds and whatever, um, I said to him, "Look, here's the deal: you roll up on a scene, you need to you need to read the crowd right away. You know what the energy's like, and then if you get there and the energy's negative, you got to figure out who's in charge, who's who's causing the problem." Mm. I said, "Because the right word can de-escalate. One word, two words, three words. Wrong word. I'm at the airport." Planes delayed, mechanical problems, everybody's pissed off at the gate. And the, above my head is a TV running uh, CNN. I'm standing next to a guy, and he looks up, he goes, how do I get this uh, TV turned to Fox? And I said, well, you kill me first. <laughs> Plays extremely <laughs> so We're still delayed, but everybody's in a much better mood. Right. The right word at the right time can just... And comics, you know, they're used to reading the audience and, you know, because you walk out and you got a few seconds to pick up, you know, where they are and then decide, you know, plus yeah. individual audience members. You can, I, I can pick out people I think are going to be trouble and I don't make, I, I avoid them if I know they're going to be a problem. Yeah. That's something I want to ask you as, as far as, because uh, you also do uh, cruise ships. You do comedy on, on the cruise ships. I used to until I You're came still- back from Cambodia and bought the, <laughs> right. my, my pharmacist, Paul, goes, uh, I said, Paul, how are you doing? He goes, we're busy and it's your fault. Right. <laughs> yes, until you tried to kill us all uh, by getting off the cruise ship. Yeah. You were doing a cruise comedy. That, that, that's a long stretch of time uh, for a lot of people that are on cruise ships that I assume they would be mostly intoxicated uh, from drinking Horrible. all day. <laughs> so as far as the uh, 
keeping the uh, the act fresh for everybody, or, or dealing with the drunk people that are on that are in the audience. How, how is that something that you can? Uh, well, that's two questions actually. Um, on yeah. Carnival, you're allowed to repeat your shows. Okay. You're 25 clean, 25 dirty, and you're allowed to repeat. Although my pride wouldn't let me repeat, I just couldn't because they would come back because they like me. And right. I took my material and I stretched it out. On Holland America, which is my last line. It was two shows in anywhere from a week to 14 days. I would do two shows. Two one night, same show. Two, two another night, same show. Um, Carnival, a lot of guys didn't do because of the adult show. They come for a verbal fist fight. They want to take you down. And if, if, if they smell blood in the water, they're going to come after you. Okay. Okay. So this is my favorite Carnival story. And it is adult. I'll warn you. If you're listening, you got kids listening, you need to turn it down right now. Right. <laughs> Uh, I go on stage, I grab the microphone, I haven't said a word. And the guy in the front row screams, you suck. <laughs> off, well, of, off of what? Just uh, the way you're wearing or? Well, I had no idea. Okay. But I said nothing. But you can't let that go. Because that's what the audience is like now. Yeah. You have to acknowledge it. Yeah. So I waited a beat and I go, yeah, you fucking swallow. <laughs> And I got a standing ovation. The guys coming up and high five me on stage. <laughs> yeah, well and, and I don't know where that comes from. People go, "How did you think that?" Up? I didn't think that up. You heard it when I heard. It. Okay. <laughs> I was doing a club in Raleigh, my old hometown. There's a woman, a bunch of drunk people in the front row. They're drinking Dom Perignon, so they don't want to throw them out. To spend a lot of money, but finally they got too disruptive. Mm-hmm. There's a dozen of them. So they're marching out. I'm, I'm looking the other way, trying to you know just let them get out. And I turned back toward the door, and the last person was a woman. And she must have heard something sounded like her name because drunks are voice activated. <laughs> and she turned back around and screamed at the top of her lungs, Fuck you. I waited a beat. I said, No, not even for practice. <laughs> <laughs> Ending ovation. <laughs> Again, it's I the think streamers, it, balloons fly from the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I believe that my comedy is just the flip side of the mental illness. And, and see, I can teach you to write comedy. I can teach you to perform it. I cannot teach you to process things like that. Right. Because everybody heard that, but I'm sure nobody was thinking the same. And yep. it, it, it's like it looks like black magic to the audience because how do you? Yeah. How do you do that? The, the carnival, there was a, all the ships have a, a bar that's for comedy, but they weren't designed that way. So that there's a bar at the back that faces the wrong way and people are watching in the mirror, but they're just connected. Mm-hmm. There's two women in the back. And the thing about drinking is the more you drink, the worse your hearing gets. What's and that? So they're talking really loud. <laughs> so finally, I just stopped and I looked at them. I just held that. And slowly but surely, everybody in the audience turns to look at them. And they're still just dead. So I waited until everybody else was facing their way, and they turned to look at me. And I yelled at the bartender, hey, Robert, do me a favor. He goes, what's that, Frank? I go, stick a dick in her mouth so I can finish. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the fun fun of comedy on a ship like that, if there is any fun to be had, (laughs) is that you and the First Amendment. And so you can say whatever it is. Right. <laughs> yep. The MC comes out and says this. It's the adult show, ladies and gentlemen. If you're easily offended, get the fuck out. Now. Right. Beautiful. 
which, uh, which I think should be all comedy. Uh, it, there's, there's too much offense being taken from just general comedy. Like, uh, I was making a joke, and uh, no, no, no. And the, usually it's – I was on board with 90% of what you said, but you crossed a line for me and now I'm outraged. And that's that's not how comedy should be viewed. Colleges, uh, there's some comics, uh, Bill Maher, Chris Rock, won't play colleges anymore because, you know, the people just so – they're so easily – they easily offended. You enjoy being offended. Yeah. I was on campus at the University of Montana Billings. I was going around town. The kids, they were taking me to radio stations because the show was going to be open to the public as well. And – um they said to me, Frank, you're a comedian. Uh, does it make you nervous coming to campus? Because you know how easily offended people are and whatever. I said, well, you know, if I was a comic, I would be worried. I'd be concerned. I'd make sure it's very, you know, very clean. Because you really get paid in that situation for the jokes you don't tell. Okay. I said, but here's the deal, boys. I'm on campus to talk about suicide prevention. So my feeling is if they get offended, fuck them. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, and I got, I'm 63. So every now and then... You know, something slips out. Uh, we walk to the radio station, probably a 35-year-old woman. And this is right in the middle of a Me Too movement. Mm. And uh, she, she well, I knew what she meant. She meant, can you give me 10 minutes to get it set up? But she says to me, uh, can you give me 10 minutes? I go, I'm 63. I'll give you a solid five. <laughs> and fortunately, she had a good sense of humor. And I said to the fellow, did I just say that out loud? <laughs> See, but that's just funny, though. It's it's it's, and I have this uh, agreement with with uh, with my girlfriend. Comedy first, always, no matter what in our relationship. Comedy first. I'm going to say a lot of things that may seem insensitive, but it's because I'm trying to get a laugh. Uh, and we're just we both entertain each other in that way. Where we both are just trying to find that line. We haven't found it yet, by the way. Uh, there, there's a lot of uh, maybe bad tempered, not bad tempered, but. Uh, it's just, we just want to, we just want to laugh. That's all it is. Well, there was a show very briefly, uh, Jeselnik. Um, oh my God, he's amazing, Anthony yeah, Jeselnik. Well, Comedy Central it was called Too Soon. Yep. And it was, it was it, basically it was something comedians do all the time among themselves. Uh, and there's some jokes that just that, that <laughs> it's Carson used to go on TV. Johnny Carson. Yeah. When I was a kid, he would tell a joke about Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> and the audience would go ooh. You'd go, it's 135 yes. years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's my, my wife is, got a, she was on the road with me all that time with the comics. And so she, and she has a great sense of humor anyway. And and like most comics, she loves dark. So she's at the, she nice. works at a grocery store. They're, they're loading up the, the spinning thing with the Pez dispenser. And okay. all the characters. Yeah. And she says to this 18-year-old kid, she goes, this is a John F. Kennedy Pez dispenser. And he goes, how's it a John F. Kennedy? She goes, watch. The head goes back into the left. Back into the left. <laughs> and he's like, oh, dear God. <laughs> uh, I, I yeah. love that kind of stuff. That, 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 yeah. that is a sweet spot for me. Well, we, we enjoy it. We enjoy a lot of it among ourselves because you, know, you can't tell anybody that. You can't say that. But yeah. Comics, supposedly Leno, when um, the space shuttle blew up, it was Leno who wrote the joke. What were Sally Ride's last words? Hey, what's this button for? <laughs> of course, he could never in a million years. Yeah. 
And sometimes you write a joke, you have to call a comic. And you're listening, you're not gonna, you somebody's got to hear this, right? I can't say this, but maybe you can say this. <laughs> so it's not my image, but it's closer to your image. It just needs to get out there because it's it's funny yeah. as hell. You think Marilyn Monroe ever picked up a John F. Kennedy half dollar and showed it to somebody and go, "Yeah, fuck it." <laughs> Yeah, there's just, but that's kind of thing comics traffic in that really dark, yeah, you know, dark humor. And some, you know, just like got a, it was a brilliant show. It didn't last because because it was too soon, right? Yeah, but it was. That was the point. It was, you know, it was socially unacceptable, not PC in the least. It was just, you know, if you don't want to hear the joke, don't tune in. It's passive medium. Don't turn it on. Yeah, that's, that's what I'll tell people. Like, uh, I'll tell my guy friends. You would love this comic, but do not watch Jess on Lake if your wife's around. Uh, no. <laughs> not, not, not appreciated. No, and I, every now and then, uh, I, I was working at a radio station, so I didn't need to be booked by this club. And the plane had just crashed. It was 777 landing in San Francisco, Korean airliner. Mm. And, it, you know, I don't know how many people. But anyway, I said, uh, I, thought, I thought, okay, how many uh, Korean pilots does it take to land a 777? And then. Uh, apparently more than they got. <laughs> Ooh. Too soon? Yeah, too no, soon. No, see, uh, th- that too soon thing, I mean, there are, I, uh, it's a weird thing. I, I guess at a certain point it could be, but as long as your intention is comedy, I'm fine with it. it yeah, it, I mean, there's certain things, you know, that I, yeah, I don't rape, date rape, you know. Um, yeah. When I ran a comedy club, I ran a comedy club for a while in Raleigh on behalf of a radio station. I said, look, here's the deal. You cannot mention the C word right. unless you've got one. You can't use the N word unless you are one. All right. And they go, we can't do that. I go, you can do it once. <laughs> yeah. The thing about comedy is you never shoot down. You should always shoot up. Right. So if you're a white guy, you shouldn't be talking about minorities. That's just our women or whatever because you're shooting down. Right. It should always be truth to power. Yes. Yes. Is the principle. Always punch up. That's Yeah. That's always a good comedy rule. Yeah. Don't punch down. So, and, you know, and there's only two words. I said, oh, and, and uh, yeah, somebody, you can't say fag or queer or something, you know, um, unless you're prepared to blow me. <laughs> so, and I'm straight. I'm just saying. Yeah. Oh, my God. We've, we've been watching a lot of South Park lately, and uh, they pushed the envelope so crazy far. Uh, it, was, it was when uh, Mr. Garrison, before Mr. Garrison became a girl – and then we went back to a guy. He was just, he was just like, uh, "You're a fag," and I can say that because I'm gay. <laughs> it was like, "Oh my god, this is on TV." This is, e- even now, watching it ten years later, like that, I feel uncomfortable. You can't put that on TV. Well, but, but it's hilarious. The Family Guy. Um, I've never seen The Family Guy before, and I'm in a hotel and turn on TV, and The Family Guy's going behind me, and um, Peter's talking, talking to his father-in-law. And he's talking about divorcing his mother-in-law. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And he goes, you know, I just, I, I'm tired of her. I just, I mean, I can't even look. We're making love. I can't even look at the back of her head. <laughs> and I thought, I'm in. <laughs> right? Yeah. But it's like Bill Burr. I'd never heard of Bill Burr. And I'm like, you haven't heard of Bill Burr. He's fabulous. Yeah. So I went, I went to YouTube. I put up, pulled up Burr. And the joke that got me was that I'm in. He goes, yeah, my mother said to me, how come you can't be more like your father? And I said, okay, fuck you, I'm leaving. <laughs> I thought, I'm in. Yeah. 
Bill Burns' whole thing where immediately he comes out and he alienates everybody. Like, all right, I'm going to say something that's going to put you all off of me, and then I'm going to spend the next hour bringing you back. And it's it's a beautiful thing he does. If you get a chance, there's a guy named Jimmy Carr, K-E-R-R, in England. Yes. He has a, a, a very unique laugh. Yes, and he's, his, his comedy is, is horrible. I mean, but it's well-written and well I mean, it's really smart, yeah. dirty, disgusting it, the, what got me there was um, the um, I went on YouTube and said the world's most offensive joke. I thought, okay, oh, I, I got to see. Um, it's not the aristocrats. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The no, <laughs> what he does is, if you get a chance, type in the Jimmy Carr world's most offensive. He says, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, t- I'm gonna tell an offensive joke. I'm gonna start off with very, not about this much offensive, and every next. I'm going to crank it up. Every joke is going to get more offensive and more offensive and more offensive until somebody in the audience screams, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> and it's amazing to watch. It's, it's just, it's the artwork, it just the science of watching and go, it's all very smart, yeah. political, topical, you know, just, Yeah. So that was part one of the conversation I had with Frank King. Make sure you stay tuned for a future episode in which you get to hear the second part. Thanks for listening, guys. Stay safe out there. Be kind to one another. And we'll catch you next time.